Matthew 6, 31. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye need all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You may be seated. the prayer that we sang as we sang uh, hymn number one. Come, O thou God of grace, make this a holy place where Christ is heard. Draw every heart to thee and may our worship be lives offered pure and free to Christ our Lord. And as I said, that's my prayer for this morning, that Christ would be heard as we look again at his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, a portion of it this morning. In many biblical teachings, there is both a negative aspect and a positive aspect. For example, we are called to be separate from the world. Uh, We could refer to that as a negative aspect. Some people tend to think it's negative. Well, why, why do we need to be separate from the world? But we also are called to be separated onto God which is the positive aspect, something to be very excited about, what we should do. Uh, There are many examples of that. We are told, let him that stole steal no more. That's what we should not do. But rather let him labor, working with his hands, a thing which is good. That's what we should do. Paul tells us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And we see that same Thing happening here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and uh, the other chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in the passage we preached on a couple weeks ago, Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. We see that contrast, what we should not do, what we should do. And again, in today's passage, take no thought for your life, but seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. In the last sermon I preached on the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at the aspect of taking no thought from our lives, which is introduced in verse 25 and uh, the following verses. We made some particular application to that, some things which we as believers either need to give considerable caution to or avoid entirely. That was the put-off aspect, which Jesus taught. And today we'd like to look at the positive side, some things that we should put on. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. So in the passage that Glenn just read, verses 31 and 32 are are somewhat of a uh, summary of the previous verses, uh, somewhat repeating the thought that he uh, introduced in verse 25. Take no thought, saying what we shall eat, what we shall drink, wherewithal shall we be clothed. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This verse has been referred to by one person 
as the greatest command in the greatest sermon by the greatest preacher of all time. And I confess, I find this verse overwhelming. As I was focusing on that this week, I just felt like, what can I do but scratch the surface? Uh, there's so much that, that could be said on this verse. So I want to introduce some thoughts to you this morning, and my prayer is that these thoughts would continue to develop in your minds, and that you would continue to think of this verse and to ask yourself, what does this mean to me? How should I seek first the kingdom of God? So thinking back again to a previous message here, or previous messages, in verse um, 21, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So I ask you, where is your treasure? And maybe that's a difficult answer or a difficult question. Maybe you're not sure exactly where your treasure is. Well, Jesus gave us a clue that could help. Where is your heart? Because where your heart is, that's likely where your treasure is. So I ask, is your heart in heaven? Or is your heart focused on the things of this earth? Think about that. Is your heart wrapped up in sports? Is your heart wrapped up in business? Is your heart wrapped up in pleasure? Is your heart wrapped up in social life? Or is your heart yearning and longing and following the things of God? Is it set on growing closer to him and on serving him and on serving the people around you and sharing his good news with others? Someone said, when a person dies, he will either leave his treasure or go to his treasure. So if you would find out that you will die today, what thoughts would come to your mind? Would it be the things that you're leaving or the things that you're receiving, the things that you're going to? That's an indication of where our treasure is. But Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. How exactly does this verse work? Doesn't common sense tell us that we should make sure that we seek our own good first and then worry about other things? Doesn't common sense tell us that we should make use of every opportunity we have for financial gain? I suppose it does, but many of us heard last Sunday as we listened to Nate Kaufman speaking that the true believer is not guided by common sense. Do you remember him saying that? So where does common sense fit into this? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm dividing the sermon into several parts, just basically uh, following the theme or the text of this verse. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Uh, what, how would that be evidenced in our life? How would that be shown in our lives? 
And I have just uh, several points here, and like I said, this could be developed much further, and I encourage you to continue to think about this. But for the person who seeks first the kingdom of God, the work of God will have priority over personal gain. The work of God will have priority over personal gain. Building God's kingdom will take precedence over accumulating earthly wealth and possessions. Now, it's pretty easy for us to get that turned around, as I indicated earlier. Accumulating wealth or accumulating even enough to cover our basic needs tends to be our first priority. And then we try to make sure we have at least a little bit of time and effort left over to contribute to God's kingdom. We have this idea, well, I, I need to earn an income, and then if I have time, I will consider adding some kingdom work. Or maybe we have this idea as we look at the larger picture of our lives rather than the daily picture, but as our life in general, well, I need to establish myself first. And then after I'm established, then maybe I'll spend some time in the work of the Lord, ministering to people, world needs, whatever it may be. Maybe after I retire would be a good time to do that. Well, frankly, God is not really interested in your leftovers. God wants the best that you have to offer, not the leftovers. He wants our first fruits. In Luke chapter 9, we have the account where Jesus, speaking to someone, said, follow me. Now, this man said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another said also, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And I think what Jesus was saying here, there are certain things in life that the spiritually dead people can do just as well as you can. So let them worry about those things. And focus on the things that you, as a follower of Christ, as a citizen of his kingdom, the things that you are able to do that others cannot do. Someone else has said we should love people and use our possessions to minister to them. But instead, we love our possessions and use people to reach our goals to acquire them. When that becomes our habit, we are not seeking first the kingdom of God. Jesus' focus was always on people. Did he use things? Yes. He used loaves and fishes. He used illustrations of nature. But he used them to focus on people. That was his focus. We should love people and use our possessions to minister to people instead of using people to help us acquire possessions. David Livingston, early in his life, made this commitment. He said, I will place no value on anything that I possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. If anything will advance the interests of that kingdom, it shall be given away or kept only as by the giving or by the keeping of it shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe 
everything. Francis, Francis Chan was another man that I don't know about, I don't know much about, except for a quote that I read. He was a Chinese man who was living in America. He was a pastor, so he had this um, perspective of seeing things from, from several different angles. Uh, the Chinese culture, the American culture, he made this statement. Our greatest fear should not be the fear of failure. Our greatest fear should be the fear of succeeding at things that don't really matter. I find that thought challenging. Our greatest fear should be the fear of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. So, what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God? To seek first the kingdom of God, it means that the work of God will have priority over personal gain. It also means, secondly, that the word of God will have priority over the demands of life. How important is the word of God to you? As people observe your life and your schedules, what does that say? about your love for the Word of God? How important is the Word of God to you? What takes priority in your schedule? I can't answer that, but I can answer what takes priority in my schedule. I know I like to eat. I know I spend a lot of time in work at work, and it's important for me to get there on time. We keep our commandments, we play our games, we don't want to miss any of those, we make sure we have time for them, but what about time for God's word? If something needs to give, what gives? Is it often our time in God's word? Does God's word have priority? Does it take first place? Do we seek it first? Do we schedule everything else around it? Or do we schedule that around everything else? A young musician was once asked, what is the secret of your success in playing the violin? She was very talented, very successful. What's the secret of your success? And she said, well, the secret of my success is planned neglect. He said, well, what do you mean by that? You don't learn by, neglect by neglecting it. And she explained, she said, years ago... I did everything else first. I had my tasks, I had my chores, my responsibilities. I did them all first. And then whatever time I had left, if I had time left, I practiced on the violin. And I soon discovered that did not work. And I discovered that if I want to be successful, I need to intentionally neglect everything else and focus first on practicing the violin. And only when I am finished with that I move on to my other tasks and responsibilities. She said, when I took that approach, everything changed. So what is your secret to success in your Christian life? Might it be planned neglect? To neglect everything until you spend that time focusing on the word of God. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And if we do that, we are going to give the word of God priority over the demands of our life. We see lots of examples of that in the scripture. 
Abraham got up early to stand before the Lord. Moses went early to meet the Lord at Sinai. Hannah and her husband Elkanah arose early to worship. Job arose early to offer sacrifices. David said in Psalm 63, Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee. And Jesus himself spent countless hours alone in the presence of God. They all made God's word and spending time with God a priority in their life. Now, I emphasized early in the morning uh, that works best for many of us. It may not work best for all of us. That's not what's important. The important thing is that it needs to be priority whenever you decide when that will be. So the work of God needs to have priority. The word of God needs to have priority. Thirdly, the worship of God needs to take priority over the demands of my life. Uh, this may be somewhat related to the previous point, the word of God. I won't spend a lot of time here on this point. But the worship of God is both individual and corporate. In other words, we should worship God as individuals, alone in God's presence. And we should worship God together as a group. When there are church activities, if we put the kingdom of God first, we will be there if we at all can. Many of our activities war against the spirit of worship. In our daily lives, it's hard to find time to really worship. And in our, our group setting, Sundays especially should be set aside for worshipful activities. It's a great time to minister to the elderly. And as we plan our activities for Sundays, keep that in mind, worshiping God and ministering to those around us. As we seek first the kingdom of heaven, there's something else that will have priority in our lives, and that is the people of God. Now, let's say the people of God, I'm referring to fellow believers, but not only to fellow believers. It, it, um, it extends much beyond that. You see, we become so busy pursuing things and pleasure that we often forget about people. And the people that we do spend time with are often the people who bring us personal pleasure or profit, and that's who we focus. Who should we minister to? Well, I think, first of all, of our personal family. And I think this is especially significant for us as fathers. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And we kind of like that verse because it tells us that we need to provide for our families. So we, um, it gives us a good excuse to spend a lot of time at work, spend a lot of time building our business, providing their financial needs. But I ask the question, is that the only thing our families need? Financial things to meet their financial and material needs? What provisions do our families really need? The provisions of love and time and care. You see, frequently, the more a person, the more focus or emphasis a person 
puts on meeting the material needs of his family, the less emphasis he will put on meeting their other needs, spending time with them, giving them the companionship and guidance and example of a godly husband and a father. We cannot compensate for that by simply lavishing wealth on them. The people of God need to have priority in our lives. It includes our personal family. It also includes the church family. There are so many ways that we can be focused on serving the church family. And I'll just, I'll just focus one area this morning. If I counted correctly, as of this year, the end of this year, our church will have 27 members who are 80 years old or older. 27 people. And we will have 15 widows and widowers. How many of those have you visited in the last month? How many of those have you visited in the last year? I think that every member of our church should make it a goal to minister to these people. And if you don't know who they are, feel free to ask me. I'll be glad to provide a list of them for you. You can check them off as you go through the list. Maybe it will not be one a week. It maybe won't be one a month. You decide what that goal should be. And as you focus on others, you will be blessed. You see, the people of God focus on others. Our tendency, our natural tendency, is to focus on ourselves. It's normal for a child. A child, soon becomes a parent, is very self-centered. It's easy for youth, for our young people. We focus on fun and pleasure and activities that appeal to us. But where is the service to others? It's obvious in young families. We're busy. We focus on ourselves. Even older people. It's interesting to observe. Some will focus on themselves and their needs. Some people focus very much on others. This week, I read the testimony of a pastor who went to visit an elderly lady. <clears throat> this lady had spent much of her life in mission work, but she was now up in years. She had cancer. It was obvious she was dying, and she was in hospice care. He went to visit her, and he said, on that visit, she was very lucid, very, very attent. She squeezed my hand. She asked me, how is your wife? What has she been doing? She asked me about the prayer meeting that we just had at church. She asked about all kinds of things pertaining to the church and people from the church. We read the scripture and prayed together, and I left. An hour later, this pastor says, he met with some church members, told them where he had just been, and said she seems to be rallying a bit and described her interest in everyone else. This church member left him finish his statement and then looked at him and said, well, brother, in the hour that passed since you visited her, this lady passed away. And what spoke to that minister was that in her last moments, all of her attention was focused on other people. It was not focused on her own needs or discomfort or whatever, even in her dying moments, her attention was focused on the family of God. Where's your attention focused? 
We can look at our personal families, our church family. What about the community family? How do your neighbors perceive you? Do they perceive you as someone who's too busy to have time for them? Do they perceive you as someone who's scurrying about their own activities, someone who's aloof and unconcerned in their interests? Or do they see you as someone who cares, someone who is there, someone who is available? These are just a few things. You can take it and develop it much further as you ask yourself, what does seeking first the kingdom of God mean to me? Let's move on to the second aspect of verse 33. And all these things shall be added unto you. What exactly does that mean? What will be added onto us? It's somewhat of a difficult question. Well, there is an easy answer. The easy answer is, if you put God first, live for him, you will go to heaven, and in the end, all will be well. You will have all these things. I say that's the easy answer, but that answer doesn't quite resonate with me. I'm not saying it's not true. But what I'm saying is, I don't think that's everything Jesus is, is referring to here. As I read the context. Think about the context here. In verse 31, Jesus says, Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and what you're going to wear. Don't worry about those basic needs in life. And I think that's what he's, he's talking about, the here, the now, not eternity. And in verse 32, he says, for after all these things, and I think again he's re referring to verse 31, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. He says, after all these things do the Gentiles seek. And he says, your heavenly Father knows that ye have need of all these things, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, what ye shall wear. Verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. You have that same word, the same, same phrase, the same two words. These things shall be added unto you. And personally, I'm not sure that we can separate these two verses and insist that the phrase these things refers to the present in verses 31 and 32, but refers to some future era in verse 33. We do have a future tense in verse 33. It says, they shall be added unto you. But verse 32, Jesus says, God knows that you have need of these things now, here, in this life. So it seems to me that these things, Jesus may be referring as much to this life as to the eternal life. So the easy answer is, Put God first, you'll get to heaven, you have everything you need. All these things will be added on to you. Well, what is the difficult answer? The difficult answer, I say, is difficult because it may be a little bit harder for us to understand. And that is the idea that if you put God first, if you focus on building his kingdom here on earth, he will take care of you and meeting your needs here. And I say that's a difficult answer because we do not preach a prosperity gospel. We do not preach 
that if you trust God, he's going to bless you with all kinds of wealth. You'll be able to get a brand new car every year and you'll be able to do all these things you wish. That's not what we preach. So how does this work? That's what makes the answer difficult because it, it raises more questions. What about the extremely poor people in many places in the world? There are those who are suffering in extreme poverty, and that includes many believers. Is it fair to say, well, they must not be putting God first if they don't have their basic needs met? And I find that question somewhat puzzling because I have seen extreme poverty. And Jesus himself said, you will always have the poor with you. I have seen poor believers, but I've also heard their testimonies. We met many, many poor people in Romania and Moldova and Ukraine. And sometimes their stories just did not logically fit together. They would tell us how little they earned. And they would also tell us what their costs of living were for their basic needs. And we'd say, well, this just doesn't add up. Uh, you, you don't have enough to cover your basic needs. How, how do you survive? And time and time again, we heard the same answer. And the answer was, well, I don't understand it myself, but God takes care of us. Their testimony was that God is meeting their basic needs. And I think the basic needs is the things that Jesus is referring to. These things, food, drink, and clothing. Andrew Murray said it this way. God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life that is wholly yielded to him. So our responsibility is to commit our lives to God and just simply trust him to go from there. So I don't know that it's in my place to ask, well, what about the believers in Haiti? Is God adding all these things onto them? I don't know that it's in my place to ask, well, what about the Christians in Sudan or North Korea or wherever you may be thinking of? The question I do need to ask is what about me? Am I willing to trust God to meet my needs and to take care of me? And the question you need to ask is what about yourself? Are you willing to seek the kingdom of God and to put him first, allow him to take care of the rest? And until we can answer yes to that question, that's really beside the point to ask those questions about all the other people around the world. I think the message of this verse is very clear. The pronouns are ye and you. The pronouns are not they and them. You need to focus on your decisions. Your decisions are the decisions that matter between God and you. Let's move forward, take this farther, and look at a biblical example. We learn best by illustration, by example. And uh, I'd like to give you an example from the scripture that will hopefully help to drive home the point. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, there are many men and women listed whom we know as the characters of faith. And it's interesting, as you are familiar with the lives of those men, to look what the writer of Hebrews mentioned about that person. And it's not always what you would expect. It's not always the first thing that comes to your mind as you think about those people. And I could, I could mention a number of those. I won't, take a, I won't do that for the period of time. But I will mention one person, and that is Joseph. And the writer of Hebrews summarizes his life in one sentence or gives the outstanding point of his life in one sentence. Now, if you were to summarize the most outstanding feature of the life of Joseph in one sentence, what would that sentence be? By faith, Joseph foresaw his position of leadership even as a youth. That would be one possibility. By faith, Joseph remained true to God even in the face of tremendous difficulty and incredible temptation. Well, that would be a good description. By faith, Joseph interpreted dreams. By faith, Joseph saved his nation from starvation. Or, by faith, Joseph forgave his wretched, despicable brothers. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews wrote. What did the writer of Hebrews write about Joseph? Simply that he was looking forward to something better. The one and only thing he mentioned was, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Why? Why would the writer of Hebrews consider that the most important thing in the life of Joseph? Well, I'd like you to think about Joseph's life. His first 30 years, we know, were pretty rough. He had some rocky paths to travel. But from the time he turned 30, from that time forward, his life was a pretty great success story. And I'd just like to summarize some of his successes and some of his achievements, some of his accomplishments. He represented the God of creation, the most powerful being in the universe, to the Pharaoh of Egypt, the most powerful political leader on earth. Talk about a position of influence. Standing before the most powerful being in the universe and the most powerful leader on earth. He was catapulted to the second in command of the most powerful nation on earth. And you can read a lot of these achievements from Genesis 41. He wore the finest clothes available. He had the best ride in town. Genesis 41 tells us he was given a new set of wheels. Maybe it was the equivalent of a Rolls Royce or an Aston Martin. I don't know. Maybe it was a Tesla. He had absolute control over all the land. No one was allowed to lift a hand or a foot without his permission. How's that sound for control? Like it or not, he was given a prominent wife. It wouldn't surprise me at all if she was the high school homecoming queen, or maybe even Miss Egypt, or whatever recognition they had in those days. He traveled widely throughout the land, he amassed what was probably the greatest collection of grain commodities ever gathered. 
And later, he turned those commodities into cash. And basically, he gathered all the cash that was available in the whole land. And when that cash, when there was no more cash available, he turned those commodities into cattle, into horses, into flocks, and eventually all the land of the country, what's left, he had it all, everything. He sustained his country during the greatest crisis it had experienced up to that point. He had the countries of the world coming to his feet. When the famine was over, the people needed to pay 20% of their earnings back to the government of the country. Now, that sounds like a pretty high tax. That would make a lot of people complain. But the account tells us that the people did it gladly because they said to Joseph, you saved our lives. What's 20%? Of course we do that. His family lived in the choicest part of the land. All they had to do was name the land they wanted. Pharaoh gave it to them. Imagine that. It was probably an area of about 900 square miles. I wonder what you would choose. Would it be Lancaster County or maybe the shores of the Gulf of Mexico? I don't know. What would you choose? But the writer of Hebrews did not mention a single one of those outstanding accomplishments. Not a single one of them. Why not? Keep that question in mind. We'll come back to it. Now, I'd like you to think with me a little bit about the book of Genesis in general. The book of Genesis, I believe, is the greatest narrative that was ever recorded before the time of Christ. It records the creation of the world, the fall of man, the flood, the division of nations at Babel, the beginning of the Hebrew nation, the biographies of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. It's fascinating reading. It begins with the foundational words, with the foundational words, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Can anyone tell me the last words in the book of Genesis? Does anyone know what they are? The last words in the book of Genesis. The last words in the book of Genesis referring to Joseph are, he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's it. That's the end. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. All these accomplishments, all those things he did, all that success, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. It's a good reminder for all of us. It doesn't matter what you achieve on this earth. It doesn't matter what your accomplishments are. It doesn't matter how much wealth you amass. It doesn't matter what truck you drive, what clothes you wear. It doesn't matter how many games you win. It doesn't matter who you marry. Unless we are gathered to glory before, every one of us is going to end up in a coffin in Lancaster or wherever you happen to be at the time. Then what? I think that is the reason for the statement in Hebrews summarizing Joseph's life. When he died, he made mention of the departing of the children of Israel. He knew that 
This was not it. There was more. He knew that life in Egypt, no matter how much he achieved and accomplished and the glamour, was not the answer. There was a day coming when they were going to leave, and he was looking forward to that day, and he intended to be a part of that number. Dead or alive, he was going with them. He was not distracted by his present life and all his success. He kept his eyes and his heart on future things. His horizons extended so much beyond these piles of grain that he had accumulated and all the riches that he turned them into. He had his eyes and his heart set on another kingdom, and his goal, the overriding value that he expressed in his life, was to make sure that his descendants and their contemporaries were headed for that kingdom and that he would be there with them. His goal in life was to assure that his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren do not become too settled in the land of Egypt. Yes, he was involved in the current life. He carried out his responsibilities. He had successes and achievements. But he was seeking first another kingdom. And according to the writer of Hebrews, his greatest accomplishment in life was that he was able to keep his descendants from becoming too rooted and too attached in the land in which they were strangers. And that, brothers and sisters, is a challenge for us this morning. How deep are your roots? Does Lancaster County run in your blood? Is that what's flowing through your heart? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Or is it the kingdom of God that is running through your veins this morning? You see, Joseph lived in Egypt. Joseph bore an Egyptian title. He lived an Egyptian lifestyle. He dwelled in an Egyptian house. He spoke the Egyptian language, but he never bought into the whole package. And this morning, this is where we live. This is where what we speak. This is what we do. But all are, are our hearts set on a different kingdom. When Joseph gathered his children and his grandchildren on his knees, before he died, there in the shadow of the sphinxes, dwarfed by those great pyramids, his message to them was, children, this is not what it's all about. This is not it. Our reason for living is not tied to the economic prosperity of this land. Our focus is on another land. We are headed for the land of Canaan. And by that, I'm not saying we cannot be involved in business. Joseph was very much involved in business. But he had another overriding focus, and he kept his head on straight. His message to his children was, this is not it. And that is what our message needs to be to our children and to our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. As we sit in the shadow of our houses and lands and businesses and toys and entertainment, children, this is not it. This is not what life is about. Our focus is on another land. We're on our way to Canaan. Or does our life cry out to our children, this is it. This 
is why I'm too busy at work to spend time at home. This is why I'm too busy to visit the elderly, to help a needy neighbor. This is why I don't feel it's important to spend more investment in the church. This is it. This is the greatest thing we have to look forward to, so make the most of it. If that is your message, I remind you, before too many years are passed, you will be in a coffin in Lancaster or wherever. Listen to Paul's message to the Romans and to us. I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I think I'll take time to give another example yet, a modern example. And um, this is on a story from the life of Merle Burkholder. He was here for missions uh, conference a couple years ago. And I don't recall, he may, have, he may have shared this story at that time. You may have heard the story before. But Merle spent most of his life living up in uh, northwestern Ontario. And then during that time, he spent a year... He wanted to take a year off from his involvement there, so he spent that year in Haiti, uh, living and serving there. And after that year was complete, he returned back to northern Ontario. And there was a certain businessman that he had had contact with over the years, gotten to know quite well, visited with him occasionally. This businessman was an agnostic. He claimed, you know, we just don't know if there is a God or not. We can't be sure if he exists and we won't know until we die. Merle had many conversations with this man, successful businessman that he was, and after he returned from Haiti, this man said, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear about your experiences down there. I'd like you to come and spend an evening with us at our cottage by the lake. So Merle made arrangements to do that, and this man said, our, our cottage might be a little bit difficult to find. I'd like you to meet me out along the main road. So they met at the agreed-upon spot, and this man's name was Roy. It said, Roy led the way in his Jaguar, with Merle following in his Ford Escort station wagon. So that is when Merle's struggle began. When they got to the cottage, Merle parked beside the Jaguar and looked through the window at the leather seats and fancy trimmings. Now that's a real car. He thought, I wonder how it would be to drive a car like that. And I wonder what he thinks of my little Ford Escort. So Merle followed Roy down the hill to the cottage. It was a beautiful location on the shore of a lake, surrounded by tall pines and edged by the blue waters of Lake Wabagoon. The cottage was nicer and bigger than Merle's house. He wondered how it would be to have a cottage like that. Dinner isn't quite ready yet, Roy said after checking with his wife. While we're waiting, I'll take you sailing. So Merle and his family boarded the 40-foot sailboat and went sailing across the lake with Roy. This is so nice, Merle thought enviously. 
and grew more and more depressed. They got back to the shore. We will eat dinner at the picnic table here in the dock, Roy said. After dinner, we will go up to the cottage and talk about Haiti. Oh, by the way, there's a jacuzzi here in the dock. Maybe the children will want to relax in the jacuzzi while we talk. So he has a jacuzzi, too, as if a jaguar, a cottage, and a 40-foot sailboat aren't enough. This is real living, Merle thought. Waves of envy destroyed the taste of the steak he was eating. He has everything. I have nothing. And the way I'm living my life, I will never have anything. I even have to go to someone else's house to eat steak. Well, he goes on to say, after they finished eating, they went up to the cottage and they began talking about Haiti. They began talking about Merle and Edith's experiences there, ministering to the people. And when they were all said and done, Roy, this host, turned to his wife and said, you know, honey, our lives have accomplished nothing. Look at what this man has done. All we have ever done was for ourselves. When we travel, we just visit sites and come home. Our lives could be so much richer than what they are. And it says, for Merle, suddenly everything was back in perspective. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I'll close with the verses from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, men like Noah and Moses, men like Joseph, men like Merle, men like people that you may look up to. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience or perseverance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We'd like to close with prayer, and we invite you to kneel with us as we pray. Lord, again, we thank you for the riches of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the messages that are there, the challenges that are there. And Lord, we confess that we feel like we can grasp so little of the deep truths in this message. But I just pray that you would continue to open your word and reveal your word to our hearts. I pray that we would continue to search the scriptures and allow your spirit to speak to us and guide us in the ways of truth. May our, may our lives be a reflection of your kingdom and the values of your kingdom as we trust you to meet our needs. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.